Welcome to the podcast, brother. Welcome to the podcast, brother. I am Pierce Nahigian. I am the elder brother. I'm Derek Hobson. I am the younger brother. And welcome to Losing Lost. Today, we are reviewing season one, episode 14 of ABC's Lost special. It originally aired on January 19th, 2005. It was directed by Greg Yatanis and written by David Fury. We haven't talked about this episode at all prior no. to right now. And I am very curious to know your thoughts. I think I know what you're going to say. I think I know exactly what you're going to say. Um, you're going to say you liked it. I liked it. Yeah, you I did. It, uh, yeah, I you did. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. You're mad at yourself for liking yeah. it. I'm going to tell yeah. you right now, Derek, I think this might be the best episode yet oh my god yeah i think it's that good it's real good it's really good uh i was my heart was in my mouth like the whole episode it and 100 percent because i'm a dad it's it i you know i think this this episode gave me more sympathy for michael when i watched it the first time but watching it now as a father this episode is terrifying this episode made me so sad because it is, it's a living nightmare. I think for anybody who cares about their kids, which I think is most parents, I'm not going to be generous and say all, but having your kid taken from you and your partner really not, one of the things I appreciated about this episode is that they don't paint Susan as a villain, but it's very clear that she does not give a shit about what Michael wants. Yeah, I got lots to say about Susan. Uh, <laughs> I, when I was watching this, my note was like, is she a succubus? Um, she, it is so clear she thinks she is better than Michael and that there is nothing he can yeah. contribute to his son's life. And it is so hard to watch. And I know I've said this many times before, I think Harold Perrineau is a terrific actor. And I think when this show gives him quality material to work with, he does exceptional work. And this whole episode was just a showcase for him. I mean, this one, too, made me really wonder how much of his story they had mapped out. Mm -hmm. Because, and as I, we will get to it as we go through it, but there's some brilliant justification for the worst lines that I know we've called out on this show. And because <laughs> I also, I remembered us talking about this episode because I thought this was a Walt centric episode. So did I. He gets a flashback, which is also a little weird and out of place kind of. It um, totally changes the episode. We'll, yeah, we'll talk more about that. It feels like it's from a completely different thing. <laughs> yeah. And a little bit of, just like let's shoehorn this in the yeah um but i didn't realize it was going to be michael michael's episode and yeah it hurts <laughs> it does and you know what david fury wrote this episode and he wrote two previous episodes that we've both liked a lot uh walkabout and solitary oh and, and i don't uh according to lostpedia he's only written four episodes um so this one solitary walkabout and then numbers which he co-wrote with brent fletcher he was also producer on the show. That's incredible. Cause like, yeah, walkabout was a game changer. Mm -hmm. We felt 
uh, and raved about how Solitary felt like a game changer. And yeah, this one, I, I mean, yeah, arguably similarly, because it is just, here's the least likable character. <laughs> now justify it. <laughs> it sounds like this guy uh, accepts a challenge. The scene towards the end when they're around the fire and Walt's just yelling at his dad that you never cared about me. You only showed up when my mom died. You don't want to be with me. Like you see Michael's face and all of the things that have happened to him over the last 10 years. And it's so hard. And you, as a dad, like when he throws that comic book in the fire, I think when I first saw this episode, it was sort of like, well, Michael sucks. But it's like, no, no, as a parent, when your kid makes you so upset, you can't do anything to them. You would never do that because you love them. But the emotional lashing out of throwing that comic in the fire and being like, this is this is what I'm doing. This is all I can do right now because I'm so overwhelmed. And it's, ugh. Yeah. Because I, I do, I still, I hate that moment. But I'm also like, you're not mad at Walt. You're mad at his mom. You're mad at at life. You're mad at what life has done to you. Well, because, like, I do... All right, well, so some of the lines that I recall us talking about that it's like, that's not human, is, Mm -hmm. like, when Walt's like, I can't find Vincent. And Michael says, "Uh, tell you what, when we get home, I'll I'll get you another dog. And as we discussed, that's not what you say to someone who loses their pet. Why would you do that? And then we find out, oh, it's Brian's dog. (laughs) And... Which, yeah, has a great punchline towards the end. But, um, that, yeah, that's it. But, like, as an example, like, it is one of those things where it's like, this is yet another relic of this life that was robbed from me. So it, it feels less of a inhuman, I'll get you another dog. I know you missed your pet. Instead, it's more like, uh, yeah, fuck Brian. Like, fuck get, Brian. get, get rid of Brian's dog. <laughs> All that that represents. And then even the line where he's like, where we talked about this, when he's on the beach with Walt and Walt's like, when's my birthday? And he's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's like, when's mine? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's one of those vicarious anger things. Because yeah, I don't think he's mad at Walt for that. I think he's like, I know yours. I know you. Your mom never said anything. And it's like, and I'm lashing out at you, but it's not your fault. It's. Yeah, all of the lines, all the dialogue that I was like, <laughs> yeah, justify it, justify it. And it's like, oh, you did in a nice open and shut structure that just keeps on. It's just the the getting kicked in the nuts. Yeah, <laughs> repeatedly. It, was, it was honestly hard to watch at times uh, in, in, in a good way. Like it was, you know, we. We're we're 14 episodes in now, and you know we've had some really great episodes, and we've had some episodes that are just kind of ho hum. And the fact that we're still in the first season of the show, and it's still pulling out surprises, like this episode is so real, with the exception of that one scene, which reminds you that you are watching Lost. Don't forget. But it's so real, and it it touches on something that I feel so deeply now. It's funny too that like this episode, the flat there's so many more flashbacks than usual. Like we've the way we've had it up until now is like we'll have like three to four 
important flashbacks of like a moderate length and then most of the stories on the island. But this story really the flashbacks just it just keeps bouncing back and forth between island and flashback and showing you this is where this guy is coming from. Like this is what this guy's life has looked like up until now. It is very similar to Walkabout in that way, where every flashback just gives you more and more to the point when Michael and Locke are trying to save Walt from the polar bear. You don't need to be told a father wants to save his son from a rampaging polar bear, but you feel it so emotionally when you're just like, Michael needs his son. Like, he needs to save his son. It's his entire purpose. It's his entire being is, I need to get my son out of danger. I will team up with this man who I really hate and have threatened to kill because I, I'm seeing something horrible happening to him. And I will do anything that I can to get him back. This episode is the first one where I feel they succinctly answer the question of why someone wants to get off the island. Uh-huh. Uh, more so than society and stuff. He has a very clear moment with Sun where he's like, I can't have him grow up here. Mm-hmm. This is not what's best for my child. And yeah, I get it. It makes absolute sense. Yep. I don't want him on that island. I want him off the island. I think that's Sun's only scene in the whole episode and her one line of dialogue. You couldn't fit more in because there's so much in this episode, but I really wanted them to have more of a heart-to-heart because of all the people on this island, Sun seems to be the only one who actually does care. Michael, how are you doing? How do you <laughs> feel? Are you okay? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the other thing, too, is that I, I finally understood, even though, you know, nothing happens romantically in that relationship. I was like, oh, is this why they set this up? That he, she's his only emotional confidant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. They justified it. Oh, speaking of emotional confidants, I have something to say about another pair of Islanders later on. Ooh. <laughs> Is it the the two C's? <laughs> Wait. <laughs> or is, or is it or is it the BS? Wait, what are we? I'm not even sure. What are we? I I was going with Charlie and Claire. Okay. It's it's Charlie and Kate. I had forgotten. Oh. I had forgotten until the the second or third scene with them when they're sitting by the fire, and I'm like, what? is this crazy chemistry that's going on between these two characters right now. And then I remembered Dominic Monaghan and Evangeline Lilly dated for like two or three years. Uh, yeah. The first three seasons of this show. And I was like, oh, it's right there on screen. It's so obvious. Like Kate it's, or Evangeline Lilly is not even trying to show that she's not very interested in this man. It's <laughs> in the context of the show, it's her just supposed to be being kind you know, to Charlie and to the memory of Claire, but they have such easy chemistry together. It's just like, oh, these two got a thing going on. This is... Yeah, it did. Even though they're talking about Claire, it very much feels like, are you guys, are you guys talking about Claire? Or are you? When she leaves him with the diary, she gives his leg a squeeze and, and, and it lingers for too long. It's like, that's not a friendly squeeze. That's a, I'll see you later. I also, I know we'll get to it, we'll get to it, but... I love how long, despite it being a packed episode, I love how long they let this chaplain-esque 
<laughs> diary reading sequence play out. That is the perfect way to explain it. And I am going to say, I think it is, it might be the funniest scene in the entire series. <laughs> like, not just in the episode, not just in the season. I think, because I remember this so well. And here's the thing. That happens immediately following this heart-to-heart that they have. It's a single take. So, like, they have, like, a, she, like, they talk, is like, okay, yeah, you, you'll do okay. Blah, blah, blah. She gets up, and then he goes into it. So, I, it's even more impressive that he can switch gears from emotional heart-to-heart with a co-star to the silliest fucking thing that we've seen on this show. <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, I, I, too, would say it is the silliest thing on the show. <laughs> when he bites that book, I was dying. I was. <laughs> I was just... Well, it's like, it's one of those scenes you remember, but it just, I, I don't, I don't remember it going on that long. It and I love that it does. Yeah. <laughs> they give it all the time it needs. <laughs> it's just like they just left the camera on and walked away. I, yeah, I'm so, I would love to know what the, like what the direction was for that scene. Like if they had blocked it out ahead of time. And it's just sort of like, all right, here, mark one, mark two, put the book here, put the book there. Or if there was, like, the director was just off camera going like, all right, now put it in the bag. Now put the bag on the other bag. All right, now walk away. Now put it in your mouth. <laughs> like, what, how did they How did they do it? Or if it was all just Dominic Monaghan, just being like, just, I'm just going to fiddle with the book for a little bit. <laughs> uh, Even at the end when Sides like, you were reading her diary, he's like, yes, I'm bloody scum. I know, I know. Fine. Yeah. Yes. I do love that though. Like the the also even uh, as a precursor to true crime, it's like I also kind of and I, I know that he doesn't he he doesn't tell us that we need to justify it because she's missing. Maybe there's a context clue in there. But as an audience member, you're like, yeah, read the dot. Maybe there's something else in there. She was mm-hmm. struggling with this for days. She was suspicious. She maybe there is a clue. The clue that we get out of it, not really a clue, but, you know, <laughs> I would be surprised to find out if the audience was not on Charlie's side. It really does make you consider it emotionally. There's a very real possibility that Claire is dead, and this is the only fragment that he has left of her. Of course he would want to read it. Doesn't want to violate her privacy, does want to find clues it's silly like that whole you know will he won't he scene but you get it you totally get it and i'm sure there's also a small part that is egged on by the fact that sawyer makes up this Mm -hmm. embarrassing humiliating excerpt yep oh this limey kid is all over me and he's like he's like is that true it's not true kate told me it wasn't true but would kate say that because she just wanted me to feel better I also think it seems pretty clear that they did not know the Black Rock was a tall ship at yep. the time that they were writing this. Yep. I, it's one of those things like similar to the, you know, the fish song lyrics or whatever. I'm like, isn't the Black Rock a boat? <laughs> we begin with a shot on Michael's eye and hear him calling for Walt. Charlie wanders in and starts asking about Claire's bags. And it's very clear that Michael calling for Walt has totally become background noise to the Islanders at this point. He doesn't even, he just asks him through his yelling if he's seen Claire's bags. 
<laughs> yeah, I even love that he completely misreads or overlooks the urgency in Michael. Yep. And he's like, have you seen my boy? Uh, no, man. But if you see Claire's bags, can you let me know? Someone moved them. <laughs> <laughs> it is the first of some very funny Charlie moments. Michael runs into Jack. He tells Jack, he's like, didn't you listen to your dad when you were 10? And Jack says, yeah, probably a little too well. Not quite sure what that means. But I think given what we have seen of Jack's relationship with his dad when he was 10, that he just took everything his dad said to heart and you know, turned him into a mess. <laughs> well, it's that he doesn't have what it takes. Uh, <laughs> and, no, no, I, I will say it's stuff like that that I think maybe this is partly what fostered that. I mean, I'm sure social media also did this, but um, I think it's that kind of stuff that fosters this fan base a bit because Jack's line of dialogue feels like an inside joke with us, the audience, you know, <laughs> like it's like Michael doesn't know Jack's story, but we do. We <laughs> saw it. We know how Jack is with his dad. And it's like, I don't know. It's, it is a, it's endearing. And to see it done in such where like, it doesn't feel inward. Cause it, I will say one of my biggest pet peeves in shows is when a character walks away and ends the conversation and then a random like uh, waiter will be like uh, is can i help you with anything else and they're like not unless you can go back in time and and then the scene ends and in real life you're like that waiter's got to be like what the fuck what is <laughs> what are you talking about but they know that for the sake of the you know the writing it it's like oh because you see like it's that kind of thing where like that's a terrible way to do it it's big pet peeve of mine that and watching people try and pretend drink coffee because it's always empty. <laughs> but yeah, like when Jack delivers the line of like, he does like the half laugh and he's like, <laughs> probably a little too well. I'm like, oh, it feels like an inside joke for us. It does but feel like that. It, it doesn't feel incongru incongruous with the <laughs> show. Yeah. All right. Uh, Hurley appears and invites them both to a golf tournament. They're playing for the last of the deodorant sticks. As Mike continues to scream for Walt, he tells Jack that doesn't he hate being a dad? Jack makes the good point that, you know, it's a lot of hard work. And then Hurley's like, nah, he hates it. Which <laughs> I enjoyed that. So Hurley once again acts as the audience surrogate, just being like, you know, all we've seen in the last four episodes is this guy hating being a father. But thankfully, this episode really subverts it and shows that, no, he does not. It is very hard for him, as Jack said. And there's been a lot of stuff that has gotten in the way. But he absolutely, the only thing he wants to be is a father. We get our first flashback of Mike crib shopping with his partner, Susan, and it is Although, amazing. <laughs> oh, I know exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> it is amazing what an earring and a dumb hat can do to make an actor look younger. Yes, I legitimately <laughs> thought this was in the era of de-aging. Uh, I was like, you can't. Are you telling me that a beanie and shaving his face makes him look 20 years younger? Yeah, it's not just that. It's also he's clean shaven, and I think he's wearing a wig. It's oh, is just, he really? I think he is. I think he's wearing a wig there, um, or he's wearing a wig on the island. But yeah, it's he looks he looks so, he does he does look so much younger. It's almost silly. <laughs> Mike wants to name the kid Walt after his dad, and she wants him to have her last name. And already we see that there is significant differences in um, in the relationship here. Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> I Well, like, at first, I was a little bit skeptical going into this episode. <laughs> Once mm -hmm. I saw, like, oh, this is Michael. We're doing Michael. Because mm -hmm. I was like, 
could the writers not think of anything else? Because Claire's baby daddy also no, was Claire. an artist. Yeah. Yes. I did like, think that was like, well, that's a little weird that that's the exact same situation. Yeah, that's all. It was just it was an odd <laughs> winky dink. Next, we're going to learn that Susan also works at the Fish and Fry. Yeah, five dollars an hour. <laughs> I, I kid you not. I got I, I, I psyched myself out because I'm like, I'm going to find a way to say it. I'm going to find like. On the island, Locke is teaching Walt how to throw a knife. Boone is in full-on disciple mode. He's just, just there. He's just in the trees. Pretty creepy. I mean, he is super creepy in that moment, but. I also really love that they gave supervision because if it was just Locke and Walt, it's like, guys, mm, just don't, don't do this. Don't, <laughs> don't make this okay. And you it's like, oh no, you've got Boone. You know what I was thinking though, is that I know that they set it up this way because they wanted the shot where Boone is leaning against a tree and he sees that Walt makes the shot with the knife and he's like, whoa. But I don't care how many feet you are away from the tree that Walt is throwing at. If a 10 year old is throwing a knife at a tree, I am nowhere in that radius whatsoever. I would be on the complete opposite side of the clearing. (laughs) But yeah, I, like you were saying, I full disciple mode. Like he is completely transformed as we Mm -hmm. see later in this episode too, but he has such a different demeanor. And I stand by an earlier sentiment I had of like, Locke kind of functioning as like the um, priest lady in the mist. She starts off ridiculous and devout. And then gradually, as things continue to get worse, yeah, more and more people start to flock to her as like, a well, we're out of options. But I also kind of like this Batman-esque quality of Locke of recruiting young wards. And Yeah, um, I, I wonder if... If the original intention was to have him start, you know, massing more followers and for it to become more of a thing between him and Jack. Well, from what you told me, it sounded like Mr. Echo, for whatever reason, more so than Jack, was meant to be the foil mm-hmm. to Locke. And yeah. Mr. Echo was building a church and like, yeah, like if we do view Locke as less, oh, I'm going to save everyone and more diabolical, which certainly in this rewatch I'm seeing because mm-hmm. i mean even this when well i know we're, we haven't quite gotten there yet but in this scene when michael then confronts Locke and says what are you doing with my boy and Locke's like you need to let him go and it's like you just told boone to let shannon go mm-hmm. and it's like you you just want to sever all family ties you just <laughs> you want everyone to be solo see um, i don't think that's true i think Locke makes it very clear that he doesn't want to get between walt and his father But he is telling Michael, you need to realize that your son is a young adult and wants to be treated like that. And I do think that he recognizes there's something about Walt and he does want him on his side. Sort of like how he told Boone in like a previous episode, like we want Saeed on our side. But I don't I don't get the impression that he wants to sever Michael from Walt. I think Michael very much is afraid that that is what it is. No, I, you're right. Well, and I think that it's, it just seems to be a recurring consequence of Locke's actions. True. Michael is furious to see Walt with the two of them. He sends Walt away. He gets tackled by Boone. And to be fair, he was sticking a knife in Locke's face. It was uh, not the, not the move. Locke says he, he treats Walt like an adult. And then he also makes the point that he's been through more than most people have in their entire lifetimes. 
And absolutely true. <laughs> Most of us have not gone through the amount of trauma that Walt has in the last 30 days or whatever we're at now. That's that's a lot for a 10-year-old. <laughs> Locke says that Walt is different, which triggers Mike. Uh, it's what Brian will say later on in the episode. And then he finally tells Locke to stay away from Walt and himself. Next flashback. Oh, God. Yeah. We have a, a very young Walt, and Susan wants to take him with her to Amsterdam. And I mentioned this before, but I like that the episode never really judges Susan. I, I don't think that it does. But it also makes it pretty clear that she thinks she's too good for Michael and she doesn't really care what he wants. Yeah, this might be a good moment to talk about this because I, I was so affected by this episode mm. that I was talking to uh, my partner about it on a drive to uh, to an amusement park, like Compounds in, uh, in Connecticut. Shout out. Because uh, <laughs> again, like I was very much... On my viewing, I was like, she's a succubus. She just is, she's milking him dry and dangling a little carrot. And she's got those chameleon-like eyes. Uh, <laughs> and, but, uh, no comment. I, uh, uh, she's gorgeous. That's not a, that's not a, I don't mean it in a mean way. I don't know. Well, what, uh, but you know what I, anyway. She does have um, wide set eyes. Yes, yeah, that is true. Uh, and when I was discussing this with <laughs> with Millie she's like yeah that makes sense and I'm like no 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 yeah, maybe I'm not explaining it right and I'm like I started quoting it where I'm like look this this happens this happens and, and I start giving like certain lines of dialogue and she's like no I I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing you said he's in and out of work in construction mm -hmm. which of course in this scene we see or hear and she's like yeah I mean the kid's what 18 months he said I'm like yeah he's 18 months and she's like well, Amsterdam, I mean, statistically, she's like, this isn't even like an unknown, like the happiest children grow up in Amsterdam <laughs> and she's got an opportunity for like a nice paying job. And where do they live? And I'm like, in L.A. or New York. I don't remember. And she's like, right. So like crime is ridiculous. She has an opportunity <laughs> to move to Amsterdam. This guy sounds like he's probably kind of a deadbeat if he's and in and out of married. work. And they're not married. And she's like. I think this is the practical, pragmatic choice. And as you said, like, I do think they, you know, and to that actress's credit, I think that she probably does this as well as anyone could because she's just disengaged enough to help make you emotionally connected to Michael, who is very much right there saying like, no, 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 no. I, I don't want this. I'm telling mm -hmm. you, please, I'll go to therapy, like giving you all of the tools while she is very much like, this is decided. I'm doing this. Oh, and that's the other thing, too, is Millie's like, well, if the kid's young enough, like he's not going to remember the father. So, yeah, seems like it's the right move. And I don't agree with it. I'm emotionally charged. I think that it's <laughs> sad and and I feel for Michael. But, yeah, compared to. My first read of her just being dag nasty evil and yeah, Millie's read of like, no, she's making the practical choice uh, to give the best life possible for her child. I'm like, I don't want to believe that's true, but it certainly feels like that is what they're going for. She's absolutely right, because looking at this from Susan's perspective, 
She's not married to Michael. She has given him what she feels is enough time for him to find a more steady job. This is a dream opportunity for her, and she's going to take it. She's decided that she's not putting her life on hold anymore, and Michael does not have his shit together enough, and she's just taking him. I think it would be it would be a different story if she was more emotionally invested, if this seemed to be a hard decision for her to make. I think we would definitely be more on her side. It makes her come off as much colder in that whatever connection she has to Michael can be boiled down to just he's the father of my child. Like she she's not into him. She's not into yeah. him. And and it's it's hard. It's really, really hard. Well, and it's doubly hard just because of how much of an upper hand she has. Mm-hmm. With the whole, when he's like, oh, I'll sue you. I'll take you to court. And it's like, I'm a lawyer, first of all. Secondly, I'm the mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, third, I've got a steady job. What do you have? Yeah. And like, I think that's probably the line that is the most difficult to walk through. Because she could have done that in a very condescending way. Mm-hmm. And made it like, this is, but she's really just like, I don't, I don't want to give her this credit. But in some ways, it's it's a mercy to tell him, <laughs> hey, if you take this to court, it's going to cost you a fortune and I'm going to win. Yeah. For me, what makes this so hard to watch is that this entire episode taps into a very male fear. And I don't think I'm out of line to talk about stereotypes here where I think a lot of men, and I know this isn't. You know, that we're all so progressive now and we, we have evolved beyond this in this perfect Star Trek utopia that we all live in. But I think most men find that their value is in their use and what they can provide for their partners and for their family. And Michael's whole story is that he is constantly being robbed of use, being shown that he is not wanted that he is not necessary, that he doesn't matter, and that he is, in all the ways that matter to a family, is impotent. He, he, he doesn't have work. He's not a part of his son's life. The love of his life doesn't want anything to do with him. And every time he starts to try to get his life on track, something terrible will happen, like he'll be hit by a car. He is constantly being rendered... Yeah, impotent is the word. It's 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 every it's every man's nightmare, like uh, being discarded, being useless. And if we want to go there, which I don't recommend, so maybe I won't. <laughs> but okay, he's also replaceable by a rich white guy. <laughs> uh, this... <laughs> that certainly adds salt to the wound. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, uh, I laugh because it's painful. <laughs> no, I think that I think that absolutely is a factor, and I think the show wisely doesn't comment on it, but it's it's there. Susan never really gives Michael a choice; she just takes Walt and takes the job, and she leaves. On the island, son asks Michael if he's okay. Says he just doesn't know how to talk to his son, and he's devastated to think that Walt might have to grow up on this island. Of course, later on. The show is going to change its mind and decide that the island is the only place that Walt can live. But for right now, we'll just say that it's not a great environment for him. Yeah, I well, I feel like 
Honestly, I feel like that's one of those off episode episodes where we just talk about Walt. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I now don't remember if Walt gets a flashback or not. I remember that scene with the bird and for some reason thought that was the... Maybe there's more context to that or something. I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah. The next day, Saeed is going over Russo's maps with Jack and Shannon. Shannon mentions the fish song and Jack is in the dark. He's not part of their little inside joke. And it's funny. He's just like, fish song? What the... What are you talking about? Is Shannon wearing a wig? Her hair is longer. It's odd to me that like her hair definitely looks longer in this episode. And I wonder if it's just her that they're doing this with or or what? Said says the coordinates seem to be leading to a triangle. He hopes it's the transmitter, but he's not quite sure. Michael gets mad, uh, says he doesn't want to build a life here or invest in, in or investigate mysteries. He wants to build a raft. As we discussed in the for the previous scene, he does not want to be useless. He wants to be useful. He wants to accomplish something. He wants to get something done. He says he and his son are leaving. God bless you if you want to help him. Walt is reading his comic book. Michael tries to bond with him by saying he used to trace comic books to learn how to draw and how to learn perspective. Walt's just ignoring him, basically. We get a flashback to, at this point, Walt is 21 months. Uh, Michael is talking to Susan on the phone. She won't put him on the phone. It's, I think anybody who has a child will tell you how mean this is, where it's like, he's like, well, he's 21 months. He doesn't, he doesn't talk on the phone. And it's like, that's not why you do it. Just be nice. Like every single scene where someone (laughs) shows up to Michael, he's like, did you bring Walt? They're like, no, I didn't because fuck you. That's why. (laughs) Yeah. I, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I, well, I think that actually, I like your analysis that it's like, he just wants to be useful and I think that's why it's like his his role as father is so ill-defined, as I'm sure every I'm sure every parent feels that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just we'll put him on the phone. It's like, well, I can't hear. It's like, what? I'm his dad, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know. But I think that me just being there is part of the the thing. Like, you yeah. know, it's. I mean, frankly, it it does remind me a little bit of when we eventually went down the route of sleep training. Well, after you should have started the process <laughs> but you know uh the way that we did it that we were comfortable with was basically i'm in the room with this 13 month old and according to this program i basically can just like all i'm allowed to do is every i think it's like every two minutes i'm allowed to say like they're there or it's all gonna be okay you know just as like a reassure reassuring thing without making it a crutch I was saying it just constantly or just being like, hey, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to ring you a story. I'm going to sing you a song. And although you wouldn't know it from the first three days, it really did seem like my being there helped her to get to a place where she's like, well, he's not going to do anything. He's here. I guess I'll try and figure this out, (laughs) which for anyone who hasn't seen a 13 month old Try and learn how to fall asleep. Mm. It is hilarious. But, like, More like hilarious not, in retrospect when you're not actively well, no, dying from sleep deprivation. Well, yeah. But no, like once once the tears and the screaming stop and she just like it is it is an activity. They have to learn how to do it. And so it is just funny to watch, you know, a 13 month old just kind of like looking around a crib and just being like, how do what do I, I see them like flop on their side and being like, that's not how you do it. 
And I'm like <laughs> folding over. And I'm like, no. And it's just like, yeah, just like kind of like figuring out like, how do you do the thing where you fall asleep? Like it is remarkable. And you know what? You only see things like that by being there. Oh, uh, so. <laughs> Michael never got to be there. Nope. Also, real quick, uh, just because since this is the part where they brought it up, do you think the raft is a good idea? <sighs> I'm trying to divorce my thoughts here from what I know about Lost. Because <laughs> I know the island will not let you leave. Um... Saeed makes the point that the water is very choppy, but I don't think Saeed knows dick about where the heck they are because nobody knows where the heck they are. I think the problem is because they really don't know where in the Pacific they are, and it is literally the biggest part of the planet, that you have a much higher chance of just dying out there than you do of finding any sort of help. <laughs> here's, here's my answer to that. If I was on the island, I would not think the raft is a bad idea as long as I didn't have to go on it. <laughs> yeah. I would not volunteer to go on that raft, but I would absolutely help build it, and I would encourage other people to get on it. But there's no way in hell you're getting me out in the open ocean in God knows where. And just be like, yeah, maybe this will work out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing is the ocean is big. <laughs> it's very big, and there it is full of terror. I don't think it's it's certainly not a dumb suggestion, no. Especially because I, you know, you would assume that everyone assumes that people are looking for them because at this point no one knows that. Oh, surprise! A millionaire put a fake plane at the. We don't have to talk <laughs> about it. I still, I, I don't. I hope that makes sense when I anyway. Um, I to just 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 jump on that tangent a little bit. I remember the fandom was really happy when Widmore was introduced. They're like, what Lost always needed was a good antagonist. And it turns out that Widmore really just makes things more complicated and does not make anything better. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but he's a great foil to Desmond. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm with you. I feel like I feel like I'd be like, yeah, man, get on that raft. And not for me. Even when I saw it, like, is it even I know when they say it, well, Hurley says it on the show later. Well, it's like, it's very clear they, they built a boat. <laughs> but like, even then I'm like, yeah, I don't no, Couldn't, couldn't get me on the raft. No. Cause you don't even have to catastrophically mess up on the raft. You just have to not bring enough fresh water and then you're yeah. fucked. Yeah. Like three, four days and you're, and you're done. That's it. Doesn't matter where you go. Doesn't matter what you find. <laughs> Plus, you know, I remember it's one of those insult to injury in that um in the heart of the sea book where they resort to cannibalism in part because they're like i think we're going west let's keep going west and it's like oh if you guys had gone north you would have hit land two weeks earlier and maybe not eaten that other guy <laughs> you know like i i have heard cannibalism at sea referred to as the custom of the sea which gives you an idea of how common sailors eating each other was in these terrible circumstances yeah they, i mean yeah the only one that sounded really bad was because they were only eating at least for in the case of the essex they're only eating people that were dead or dying but <laughs> it, as they got like out of fresh water and stuff they basically just i remember one of the last <laughs> rounds they just draw straws and it's like 
whoever gets the short straw takes a bullet to the head and we're going to eat you. <laughs> and it's like, oh, God. Oh, God. Like, <laughs> uh, anyway, we can move on. So, uh, yeah. So I think what we've come down on is raft is a good idea in theory so long as nobody has to actually get all the raft. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, Susan says she's been seeing someone, Brian, the guy who gave her a job. Michael says he's going to Amsterdam to get his son. He is immediately smashed by a car and god damn it looks like it hurts that is a yeah. good stunt and it is oh oh the way that he just like whew, rolls up on that windshield and just rolls off it's just it, it so engages you in the moment that i remember looking at this bloodied michael on the concrete and i'm like is he dead <laughs> and, and before coming back and be like no Derek. he's obviously not you're watching pay attention <laughs> it's like, but yeah, I, uh, it is that bad. Also, you leave out a note here, which just, I feel like it does again, just, just life shitting on Michael. But when Michael has a line of brought, wait, Brian, is that the guy that hired you? Mm-hmm. Which also is just like, it's like, Oh God. Yeah. Oh, she was checked out long before. Like, so long and, before. and not, I, you know, and I suppose you could, devil's advocate say maybe susan's right maybe or you know maybe the attraction blossomed with their working i don't you know but it <laughs> it's uh you know well and certainly just not the time to find out that information like oh, yeah. just ah oh. anyway on the beach charlie's going through claire's luggage for her diary so this is a beautiful shot that they have where where charlie's on the beach like they're they're clearly using natural light It's either very early in the morning or right at, like, around, like, dusk. But the problem is I don't understand when this is supposed to take place because the next scene has Mike and Walt going through the wreckage during the day, which just seems like a normal day. So it's confusing. I feel like they they sacrificed a little bit of timeline continuity to get this very gorgeous shot. I just – I felt like pointing that out because it's it it was more so in the second viewing where I was like, wait a second, what – where is – where does this fall in, in this episode? I will say, because I think I mentioned this I just now, for like, again, the first time in like a decade, have a TV. And it has that soft focus thing on or whatever, the, the multiple... Motion smoothing? Yeah, like the, the soap opera look. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I know I can turn it off. And I know me 15 years ago would have right away. But with Lost, I kind of enjoy it because... <laughs> Yeah, similar to like this shot being beautiful. I'm like, it just, it really is like, yeah, you don't, it doesn't feel like a set. You see the leaves just mm-hmm. like rippling. And I'm like, this is neat. It's surreal to, especially like in watching other shows, be it Law and Order or a rerun of Gilmore Girls, they're very clearly staged productions. And I'm like, oh, yeah, look at how that cash register is clearly made out of cardboard. And, you know, like, but yeah, and watching Lost, it's like, oh, hey, look at those leaves. Anyway, it was a beautiful shot, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I would like to get on a soapbox very briefly to say, yes, what you are saying is absolutely true. And when you watch a show, like, say, a modern show, like The Mandalorian, that everybody seems to think is the best damn show ever and is so cool. Do you know how they shoot The Mandalorian? I have seen a a behind-the-scenes video. Okay. So for those who don't know, 
some of the Mandalorian is is done with sets, but a lot of it is done with this new sort of blue screen technology where it's not shot on a blue screen per se. It's shot in front of like a projector, basically, so that you have as an actor and as the director, you can actually see the environment that they're going to be, you know, zhuzhing up in a computer like around you. And everybody was so gaga about this technology and everybody says that it's like so great. But the problem with this is when you shoot it like that, you can only shoot in this little circle where the projector is. So every scene where you use this thing has this very limited amount of movement that you can do. And if you watch the show knowing that they're using this, every scene is just like no one is going to run further than like across a small room. Like it makes it like even though you have this huge expansive environment that's supposed to look so real, no one's ever moving in that environment. They're all just sort of contained. It feels like there's this invisible force field around them. And it drives me insane. And I'm like, I want to like this show that everybody loves so much because isn't Star Wars great? But it is, it's fake. It feels fake. It feels fake and not real. And I don't like it. And yes, I absolutely advocate for going to a real location and shooting it. I know it's more expensive. Pay writers and actors more money. I, I sided with the strikers. All right, I'm off. I'm off my, <laughs> I'm off my soapbox. I uh, I still haven't seen it, but I'm told that I would like it because it's supposed to be very western. Um, the first season is very good, but it sounds like that Plinkett review too, like the uh, for the prequels where it's like they run out of trackpad mileage. Yeah, or but that's, like, yeah, it's it's the same thing where it's you know they were so every time you see like a behind the scenes thing where they're like they're always patting themselves on the back for this projector thing, and I agree it does look more real than blue screen. But you run into that problem of if you are shooting a scene where people are in an open environment, it doesn't feel like they're in an open environment because they're not, because they're banded by, you know, however big this actual room is. And it's not, it doesn't feel natural. I, it, it really bothers me. As someone who hasn't seen the show, I certainly distinctly remember a number of uh, Westerns where like people are behind rocks and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're making me think that this almost makes it like in Looney Tunes when there is a cupboard that is a slightly different shade of blue. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that cupboard is going to be opened at yep. some point if that's kind of like what it is. But it's a live action show, so it feels wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great analogy. It is a lot like that. <laughs> One of those things where like once you know how like the magic trick works, you're you're not having fun anymore. You're just looking for the trick. Where were we? Oh, yes, this scene. <laughs> Kate takes Charlie to Sawyer to find the diary, and Sawyer chuckles at the implication that just because something's missing, he took it, but he did totally take it. <laughs> I do love that. I like that the reason he took it is because, as we have already seen, as it's shown to be characteristic of him, he reads. And he says, yeah, it's hard to find a book around here. It's like, I buy it. He's looking for something to read. You know, I, I I wondered about that. I thought he was just joking. But then I thought, like, why did Sawyer take the diary? And it's much more, uh, I think it's much, sh- a much for a much shittier reason. I think the fact that he took the diary implies that he saw that Kate brought Claire's luggage to the beach and then went through it when nobody else was looking, looking for valuable things. And the only thing he decided was valuable was her diary. 
And so what Sawyer's reasoning was, no one cares about any of this other crap, but someone might care about her diary. That's something, that's a good that I can sell, which is so mercenary, but is perfectly in keeping with his character. If there is something of value, I'm going to take it. There are people on this island who would value this for whatever reason. It doesn't even necessarily have to be Charlie. It could just be somebody who's looking for entertainment. It's like, hey, remember that girl who got kidnapped? I can sell you her diary for whatever you got me. It's a shitty thing to do, but that is Sawyer's thing on the island. He provides yeah. goods. That's a great point. I completely omitted that he would have had to go through her stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fucked up. And also likely had that scene gone on longer he would have been like look she's probably dead which yep. would just be like yeah so like he said so mercenary jeez yeah that's rough charlie is rightfully pissed about this he makes the smart move and punches sawyer in his wounded arm yeah and then the sound effect for sawyer's punch is so comically over the top i watched the episode twice and both times i was like that's that's a little much that's too much. I mean, Sawyer is Sawyer is the size of two Dominic Monaghan stacked on top of each other. But the sound of his punch is like a hammer hitting an anvil. It's just it's just like crunch. It's just it's too much. That after his very like like clearly like ow like his very uh very real but also very much like a you don't do that like. Yeah. Charlie tells him he hits like a ponce and Sawyer gets madder at Charlie than we have seen him get with any other man on the island in confidence, man. He, he gets, I think he gets madder at Kate when she has pity for him than he, we have seen him like on the island. But every time that he gets like, when he gets into it with like Saeed or, or Jack, it's always this very mocking kind of attitude. And for whatever reason, being told that he hits like a ponce by Charlie just I think it's I think it's the fact that Charlie took the punch and had the the balls to say like yeah fuck you I don't care and he just walked away uh I loved it I uh Kate has to hold Sawyer back from going after Charlie again and uh yeah I <laughs> thought it was great that that delivery Charlie just like the, the blood in his mouth and just like looking about it just sort of like you should be ashamed of yourself yeah <laughs> oh man I did love it. I mean, we don't get a lot of Charlie Sawyer scenes. And it was uh, it was nice. Yeah. Well, Walt's supposed to be helping his dad. He sees Locke and Boone going into the jungle. And so he tells his dad he's going to go get water. <laughs> Michael does a very parent thing, which is like, and me too. Me. Hey. Hey, please. Thank you. Okay. All right. All right. And you're gone. And they're just gone. Shannon tells Boone he's acting weird and not bringing back food. Boone makes light of Shannon's bulimia and says he thought she'd be happy to drop a size or two, which is shitty. It's very shitty. Yeah. I will say, though, like, as far as the characters go, it was interesting to see this is how... I know we've seen it before, but it is interesting that earlier in this episode, when Michael says, I want to build a raft, she's like, ew, no. I don't want to mm -hmm. do that. I, I get seasick. And then here as she's trying to control and manipulate Boone it's like you're not bringing back food and he's like yeah whatever fuck you and she's like well you know I'm thinking about going on a raft and it's like no you're not oh right <laughs> it's yeah yeah it's a very direct follow-up from 
the hearts and minds, showing that Shannon is trying to manipulate him. She is trying to separate him from Locke. She, even though she thinks the raft is, or at least that she makes it out to seem that she thinks the raft is a dumb idea, she doesn't like the influence that Locke has on Boone, and she is trying to get him to do something else. And we see the, however you choose to look at it, either Locke's brainwashing or his freeing of Boone's mind, of his obsession with Shannon. He don't, he don't play that no more. No. <laughs> Locke tells Walt that he should respect his father's wishes. Michael goes nuts. And here is one of two things in this episode that I really did not like. And I, I'm going to blame a second unit director here. Locke tells Michael that he just wanted to give him this pencil to help him with his drawing. He thought he might need it. And they cut to what is clearly a pen. It's such a glaring error. I was so surprised. I was like, whoa, what are we doing? What are, what are you? I'm very much enjoying this episode, and this is so wrong. Like, who 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 messed up here? Because, like, either, either you couldn't find a, a shot of Locke holding a pencil, which is weird. Or, you know what? <laughs> if you don't have the shot of him holding a pencil, then uh, dub him. Dub, dub Locke and say that, like, I was just given this pen for you. It's this is this is a very solvable problem. And the <laughs> fact that it went to air and is now streaming with the shot of being like, I got you this pencil cut to pen in hand. Not even can't even you can't even like look at it and be like, oh, from the side, maybe it looks like. No, it is a it is a pen It's a pen with a cap. I didn't notice. You didn't notice. Oh, my <laughs> God. It drove me nuts. No, that that is the kind of stuff that does drive me nuts. I didn't notice. I did notice that, and I I, I thought this is what you were going to say, but that he, he doesn't give Michael the pen. No, he <laughs> like, doesn't. <laughs> and I get that he's, Michael is trying to kill him at that point. Yes. So it's, you know, I, I get it. Yeah, it would have been a very weird, humorous beat if he just, like, left the pen slash pencil at his feet and then just, like, walked out of the caves. <laughs> Mike tells Locke that he will kill him if he sees him with his son again, and he is serious. The look on his face is, it is deathly. Yeah, uh, we have the scene we talked about before, where Walt tells his dad he's a jerk, that he never cared about him, he only showed up after his mom died, and in anger, Mike burns Walt's comic. That's a tough one to watch for what all that we've seen, and you can see that Mike is what Michael never does in this episode, not even at the very end, is he never throws Susan under a bus. He never tells his son, "Your your mom was shitty to me. I don't know why. She never wanted me to have contact with you." What he does say is he's like, I don't know why this happened, but he doesn't he doesn't call her names. He doesn't besmirch her memory. It's very big of him. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately smart. Uh, yeah. Let's start fresh. He even he gives her the benefit of the doubt. I, I think that was the part that caught me the most off guard. And I think they even like I feel like they they stab you with this a little bit in the moment that we'll get to in a sec but since we're here because yeah all of the letters that michael wrote to walt obviously walt makes it clear he has never seen them mm -hmm. which is all kinds of sad but i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna just blow past it <laughs> you know michael gives her the benefit of the doubt and saying you know i don't know why she didn't show you them but she also didn't throw them away either so mm -hmm. that must mean something and while i would like to believe that she was saving them so that if he asked questions, she could show this. The scene where we see Michael come into possession of that box, 
is what appears to be either a nanny or like a nursemaid mm-hmm. or something. It's the nanny. So, yeah. And, you know, again, when Lost is smart and they leave something open to interpretation, they don't make it like purposely vague, but they, they leave it open to interpretation, which I feel is very different in that the nanny passes Michael this saying, like, I think you should. Ha-. And it feels like the nanny kept them. That's interesting. I uh, so yeah, I I made a note of that, and my note was, is she sad over the general situation with Walt's mom dying, or because it seems like I'm reading the scene as she's sad. She's like, Walt never got these letters, and I'm giving them to you because I know that you want him to have them. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that Lost is is really it is letting us do the work. And I really appreciate it when it does that. And I appreciate when it, it it is a fuller, larger show when it makes decisions like that than a lot of other network shows would be. I don't know if there's anything more to this, but I, the only kindness in Michael's life does seem to come from not like lower class, but like, I guess if you, if you view Susan and her life with Brian, they're both. Uh, seemingly elite lawyers. I mean, again, Brian is like co-partner or whatever of the firm <laughs> and they move from Amsterdam to Australia. They, you know, clink their wine glasses and say, Oh, I guess no more meetings with Hong Kong for you. huh?" <laughs> you know, like the only time we see kindness in, in Michael's life is from people who come from like working class, I guess, like the, the nurse had a surprising amount of screen time maybe a surprising number of lines of dialogue when she's like telling him like the black and white and red all over. Mm-hmm. And she seems very sympathetic to him. Um, yeah. yeah. Again, same thing with the nanny where it's like, Hey, and I, I don't know, I guess maybe it is like, maybe it's supposed to parallel a little bit son. Yeah. Maybe people who otherwise are more quiet. You know, I don't know. I, maybe there's nothing there. I it's, it's interesting. I think it is interesting. I think there, there, there does seem to be a class thing here. And one of the few things that is clear about Susan is that she believes that she is above Michael. Yeah. In station. And Michael is. <laughs> Look, we're all yeah. just skirting around the fact that we've all dated a Susan. Okay. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Everyone's dated a Susan. I was, I was going to on that and uh, I just realized that I can't <laughs> look that's all that's all we'll leave it at that <laughs> this, this episode just got really personal <laughs> <laughs> you know what Susan let me tell you something you're not better than me <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm doing fine I'm doing just fine <laughs> Our next flashback, Michael is recovering from his accident. He's drawing his son a birthday card. The nice scene with the nurse there. Susan pays him a surprise visit. She does not bring Walt. Yeah. (laughs) She pays all his medical expenses and tells him she and Brian are getting married and Brian wants to adopt Walt. And the episode just keeps kicking Michael in the nuts. You're right. It's like that Jack episode, the uh, All the Best Cowboys Have Daddy Issues, when... Every single flashback reveals a little piece more of like, God, this sucks. God, this sucks. Until eventually <laughs> you get hit with the final blow of, 
oh, and um, you're okay that she was pregnant? Yes, uh, I knew she was pregnant, but it wasn't a real baby. And Jack's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, and uh, I, uh, I like that, yeah, this one, they do the same thing where it's like, Brian and I are getting married. And it's like, God, lady, that, is this, and you want him to be okay with it? So that's why you're paying his medical expenses? Mm-hmm. Wait, that, that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. I want you to give up your rights as his father. Oh, oh. Like, oh, God, just what is he going to do? Say no. And then she doesn't pay because she never says again. They they leave it open. They leave it open. But you get it's like he has no power. He has no power. And she only visits him when he has no power. And to a point where, like you said, he's he's uh, not inept uh, in impotent. impotent. Yeah. He can't even walk, can't even get his legs up. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, no, yeah, it's, uh... it's manipulative and. I hesitate to say selfish because I think it's it's too easy to call Susan selfish. I think Susan has a very clear idea of what she wants her life to be. And what that is, is having a very minimum level of involvement from Michael. It is heartbreaking to see somebody being marginalized in their own life. To say yeah. you want to have this relationship and everybody is keeping you out of it. This is the thing that I was going to save for the end, but I feel like this is a good spot for it, which is if Lost was written and they had the foresight, like they, they wrote all five or six seasons or whatever they were, you know, allegedly planning. I think this flashback and, you know, it's tough actually now I, I say, I'm saying this out loud because I wonder if it minimizes the impact of it. But I did get shades of flashbacks, my personal flashbacks. To watching this show and seeing Daniel Faraday's episode where we find out that his mom, Eloise Hawking, is effectively trying to keep Daniel Faraday on rails Mm -hmm. so that they can close the time loop. Yep. And there's a small part of me that's like, how does this play if that's actually that's what susan is doing as well and you know like i know you could make the artistic interpretation choice to say well isn't that what all of these flashbacks are is people who get them on the, you know like but i i mentioned this too because her death is so vague mm-hmm. that there was also a part of me that's like like a reverse penny desmond situation of like mm-hmm. is michael her constant and uh the time that she doesn't see him, like when she's visiting, again, this is when I was on the succubus route, that <laughs> she, she sees Michael to get the the mental fix to be, you know, no longer unstuck in time. Then when she stops, yeah, has the embolism in her brain and dies. <laughs> um, but I am fully aware that all of this is just fan theorizing. <laughs> to your credit, Lost is a show that only encourages that kind of rabbit hole diving. <laughs> um, I What I was trying to remember was if something comes out later that, for whatever reason, Susan was trying to protect Michael or was trying to keep them separated because of something. But if I if I recall correctly, it's no. I think it it's just, this is just who Susan was. And Lost allowed a complicated independent woman to be a character on a show and then and then not be 
and uh, my hat's off to him. Okay. Hurley tells Michael that Walt's gone. Michael confronts Locke, but he's not there. They set out to find Walt. Kate helps Charlie bring Claire's things back to the cave. And we get the bit with Charlie trying not to read the book. It's great. We have Walt in the jungle with Vincent. And Vincent runs the hell away because he always does. We get a flashback of this episode going in a totally different direction. Yeah. Uh, So Susan feels sick. And that is ostensibly what this scene is about. But what it really is, is Walt manifesting a bronze cuckoo, which slams into the glass and is creepy as hell. I I forget if we, I don't think we ever really define what Walt's powers are. I don't know if it's that he actually makes things happen or he shapes, because we know there are polar bears on the island, but we know that Walt was thinking about polar bears. So it's not necessarily that he conjured a polar bear, but that he drew a polar bear to him. In the same way that I think uh, Walt was thinking about a bronze cuckoo and he he drew it to him. But as you mentioned, we never really get a full explanation as to what Walt's powers are, what his deal is, only that he is quote unquote special. Yeah, well, that's why I like what a weird name for this episode to title it after the thing that's like, we'll throw one one Walt flashback in there. Mm-hmm. This was something, too, that I was like, is there any other evidence of this? And I couldn't think of any. So I dropped it. But that idea of like drawing something to you, I wanted to make the argument that Walt's power being the son of a succubus <laughs> is to is to draw people into dangerous situations. Because, yeah, certainly with the bird, you can view this as like, oh, he drew the bird to him and, and it crashed into the window and dies. But then we also hear when, you know, in the earlier flashback, when like, Michael's like, I want to listen. I'm going to hear my boy. Like, what if almost two-year-old Walt is like, Dad, come to me. Come to me. He's like, I'm coming to Amsterdam. And instead of crashing into a window and dying, gets hit by a car. That's uh, interesting. But I don't. And then I'm like, was well, there one for the polar bear? And the polar bear does get stabbed, but the polar bear does run off. And so I'm like, <laughs> well, I guess that one doesn't count. But yeah, so I, I, I would think that's interesting if he pulls people in. I, well, I... I think it's an interesting parental metaphor of like release your sense of self-protection to protect Walt. We also know from a previous episode when he's rolling dice, Hurley, when he's, I forget which episode it is where he's playing backgammon with Hurley. Hurley's mentions that there's no way that anybody could be as lucky as Walt. And Walt is manifesting like the dice rolls that he wants. And uh, that is a very early uh, and he says that his stepfather said he was the luckiest kid he knew. That is a very early clue that something is going on with Walt. Something that, like, you really don't get until a rewatch because it's such an innocuous thing, but it is very clearly a a, a hint as to what's coming. Man, Walt. And you know what else? They never really say, from all the interviews I've seen, they never really say uh, what they were going. It sounds like, if anything, it's just like, well, throw this in there. Are we going to do anything with it? Eh. <laughs> I think they were it, it was meant to coincide with Claire's baby where you know the whole island has a whole thing about fertility and different people have different powers because by the time we get to the end of oh, Lost yeah. it's crazy that they so we have two different characters who see ghosts but they see ghosts in different ways. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So we have Hurley who sees ghosts 
And then we have, I forget what his name Miles. is. Miles. Yes, Miles, who sees ghosts, but they don't, but they don't do it in the same way. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and we've got, uh, we have so many like little things. We have like Walt with his weird powers. We have, uh, we have Jacob. We have other stuff, and um, you know, there's no real coherent. Man, you know what? We got to wrap this one up. On the island, Walt searches for Vincent, and he hears a growl. Cut to another flashback. We have a lot of, like, intercutting flashbacks between all the, the action here, which is cool. Brian shows up at Mike's door looking like hell, <laughs> understandably. Susan's just died, and after a lot of dithering, he reveals he wants Michael to take Walt because he scares the shit out of him. And once again, Brian has not brought Walt. Nobody ever brings Walt to Michael. Yeah, that's such a pain. Yeah. I, I will say, giving that, that actor some credit, his what the fuck face when the bird hits the window mm-hmm. and dies is like, he very much has like that down of like, uh-uh. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Also, and I know again, like many things, open to interpretation. We believe what we want. But are we in agreement? Did Susan want Michael to have Walt in the event of her death or? Nope. No. Okay. Yeah. No, I am firmly <laughs> on the side of she did not. It's so interesting how how many layers of Brian lying to Michael before Michael gets to the truth, where he's like, Susan didn't say this at all. Like, you just want me to take him. <laughs> uh, and then he even, well, we'll get to it. He Well, he even, he doesn't badmouth Brian either. Just, well, it's, it is an interesting thing, too. In the only Walt flashback we get, we see Brian. And obviously, he's completely enamored with the mom and then freaked out by the son. Mm-hmm. But we never see him being like, well, don't forget to eat your cereal mm-hmm. or shut shut up and sit down. You know, like there's no one way or the other. It's just kind of like a, uh, you know, think what you will. This is what I want to review here. Think about how messed up this is. Brian has raised Walt for at least eight years. Walt's like 21 months. When we hear that she's got Brian is over at her place and they're together. So Brian has, he is freaked out enough by Walt that eight, you're like, I don't care who you are. Like eight years of being a parent, that's a long time. And to just say like, no, I'm, I'm done with this kid. I don't want to, I don't have anything to do with him. Yes. And this is the fan lost theorizing i'm realizing this was part of that thesis that doesn't go anywhere because the polar bear lives because it's so vague as to what causes susan's death again going back to walt summons a bird it dies maybe when walt was 21 months summoned his dad almost dies i was like are you gonna say that walt killed his mom yes that is a hundred percent what i'm saying and why a guy who, yes, basically was a father for like eight years would be like, I think the kid's going to kill me. <laughs> it's a Damien and, in the Omen situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like, you know, to Brian's credit, if that was why he's watching the news, seeing the airplane that he sent them on go down. And he's like, I was right. Yeah. I was right. <laughs> Yeah, him and the uh, the Claire psychic are both watching the news, just being like, "Whoa, dodged a bullet there." I just Brian, Brian probably doesn't come back if Susan doesn't come back, but uh, yeah, 
I, What's the thing that I, I love the most about the end? It's no, it's not the end of Hurley's episode. It's Hurley's flashback. I think in the, the season finale where we've seen that his curse brings what seems like bad luck that brings like good fortune. Right. So like all these people like in his life get hurt, but they end up getting like big, like settlements and stuff and all this, you know, he has like his house, like gets sets on fire, but like he gets like a whole bunch of insurance money from it. And what I love is that like Hurley thinks that his curse is trying to keep him from getting on this flight because his life sucks or whatever. But really the curse is trying to keep him from getting on the plane because it's the plane is going to crash. Oh, I mean, we'll talk about it more in the season finale, but I love the whole thing where the way that his curse works is like it is trying. It is not trying to give him a bad day. It is trying to find every way possible to prevent him from getting on this doomed flight. I don't remember. I, I'm yeah, I'll be excited to see it. I, yeah. And that's another uh, thing. That's another magic thing where it's like not only can Hurley see dead people, but he is also cursed. Yeah. Uh, Brian says, sometimes when Walt's around, things happen. He's quote-unquote different. On the island, Michael and Locke are searching for Walt. We get another flashback. Michael gets the box from the nanny. Uh, She's upset. We've talked about that already. Um, On the island, we get the CG polar bear, which (laughs) looks like a cartoon. The CG is so dodgy, it, it looks like somebody just put an animated bear on there. But... It's intercut with some shots of what I think is a puppet clawing at the camera, which does look pretty scary. So, you know, there's a little bit of realness and a little bit of very fakeness uh, going on there. Whenever I see that stuff, I always wonder, like, did did they think they were pulling this off, like, at the time? Did the animators look at it and be like, yeah, that looks really good. That bear definitely doesn't look like a shiny white blob that we just put in a real jungle. Yeah, like weirdly out of focus and blurred, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm sure someone probably was like, oh, I'm a, yeah, because it's moving and stuff. And it's like, but the rest of the shot looks great. So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know what they. It looks like a like an amorphous like blob of ice cream that's just attacking yeah. the tree. Um, another flashback. We have what is very clearly Oahu subbing in for Australia. The whole scene between Michael and Walt is handled very well. Walt is confused and mad and scared, and Michael does everything he can to ease him into the new situation. At the very end of it, after this very emotional scene, Michael steals Brian's dog. Hell yeah. And it's great. (laughs) Michael's face when he says, Brian says you can have him. Where it's just, it's such subtle acting, but it's really, really good. It's hilarious. And if he was to play it funny, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be at all. Yeah. And yeah, just nails it. God, yeah. Yeah, he does. He, yeah, he, it was great. He was great. And then we come to my second critique after the pen fiasco of this episode, which is the way that Locke and Michael cross this branch to get to Walt is so stupid. <laughs> And it is it is the two of them basically doing like a high wire act where they're just like walking. And then and I'm, I'm convinced that the only reason they did it this way is so that you can get a shot of Michael almost falling and Locke grabbing him, which doesn't even look very well done. But it's like, no, the way that you go in that situation is you shimmy across that branch. Obviously, that doesn't look very heroic, 
but it makes no sense that that is how you would cross a branch. Like they're like 30 feet up in the air and they're, they're doing it like Spider-Man. It's, 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 this episode is great and this is stupid. It's stupid that they did it this way. <laughs> and Locke and Michael save Walt. And this final scene here, we have Michael showing Walt the letters that he wrote. It's a very nice scene. Like I said before, Mike doesn't throw Susan under the bus. He says he could have said anything, but he tells her that she saved them. So maybe she wanted Walt to have them someday. And we have Charlie finding some nice things that Claire wrote about him. And then the mentions of the Black Rock. He tells Jack and Saeed that maybe she's there. And then, while searching for Vincent, Locke and Boone find a very disheveled-looking Claire and lost. <laughs> um, I remember the first time seeing this episode end and thinking that she wasn't pregnant anymore. I could understand that, yeah. You don't, you don't see her, and she, but she looks so, like, emaciated that it, it seems like she's, you know, that there's less of her. And frankly, I think that would have been the better move. Okay, I know we technically finished. There is one thing on here that I think is worth talking about because I do think that this line might be one of the best lines. Certainly, I think this could be one of the best lines in Lost and it might be one of the best shows on television or anything ever. <laughs> um, and we just glossed over it, which is when Michael takes Walt to go through the wreckage to help him build the boat. And Walt's like, what are we doing? And Michael says... This is us taking control of our destiny. Mm -hmm. Walt says, feels like punishment. (laughs) Uh, And I think that is definitely a recurring theme in this show, certainly. But also, like, just in life of how destiny can feel like punishment. Um, And it made me want to keep track of every time they mentioned Destiny on the show, because the last time I remember hearing Destiny was when it was a punishment, is when Locke is in a chair in Australia, ready to go on the walkabout. And he's Mm -hmm. like, this is it. This is my destiny. I'm meant to do this. And yeah, I think they do a lot of that sort of, this is what I'm meant to do. This is Destiny. And I was reminded of Charlie. I know this is now, again, towards the end of season three. I do kind of love at least thinking about it i guess we'll see when we get there but i loved when he is being just violently tortured bloodied to a pulp by these two people in the swan station and he's just laughing and playing around and they're like why why are you still so jovial and he's like this is my destiny it doesn't matter what you do to me you're not going to kill me because that button that's the one i'm going to press it or whatever and it was <laughs> yeah. like and it is like kind of like a neat thing of uh, he's like, I can suffer through this because this is the end, the end of the bloody rainbow. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's all I'd say on that. Point is, special was great. I enjoyed it. I honestly do think that this might be my favorite episode of the show so far. It would absolutely rank in my top five for season one. I think that's totally fair. And I think it is like part of it is like it is such a delicate line they walk with Susan. The actress, too. She does a good job at like it is just the right amount of dialogue that's the thing like there's i know that there will be later episodes where they belabor a point and they belabor its vagueness mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. where it's just like what is this thing uh do you know what that thing is well what is it what's behind it i can't tell you what's behind it you'll just have to find out for yourself oh, well, I'm gonna find it. and i i hate those that's exactly but, what it is 
but like yeah this one like we said like they leave enough things open to interpretation where like yeah susan never says hey if you don't sign over your rights i won't pay your medical bills but it feels like there's an implication there and mm-hmm. you know it's it's like stuff like that that like you can easily side with michael even if you're looking at it objectively and you're like she's probably making a reasonable decision yeah it's it's interesting i i agree i think top five for sure especially because yeah and i i know i mentioned this before but like in terms of talking about what makes a good episode of lost i do think that these type of things that retroactively make things better because mm-hmm. again like so many lines I really don't know if they had this in mind prior or not, but yeah, you look at the the dog comment and the the when's my birthday, and I'm like, these ones really stick out. But then after seeing his story, I'm like, oh, you justified him. I can't think of any of the lines that stuck out from before this episode that you know I'd still be able to point to and say, why did he do that? Just really a uh, meticulous and and it comes with the silliest scene in all of lost <laughs> it really does. it's all that we we not only get a, a solid episode by itself but we see things building from previous episodes we have boone severing himself from shannon we have charlie still trying to solve the mystery of what happened to claire we have saeed and shannon working together on the coordinates we have Locke and Boone still doing their hatch mystery stuff. It is absolutely an episode where everything that happens in the episode matters. And everything that we see has a precedent in a a previous episode. And it's why the show, when it's good, it's so good. Because all these parts fit together. And you're seeing how they're connecting. And it's, uh, it was special. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah i really don't know why they call it that it's just you know like i wonder if that's how they started writing this is that they're like imagine you're a parent and someone tells you your kid is special but not in a good way <laughs> and it's like let's capture that feeling for 45 minutes 